Hello, everyone. Welcome to the binary episode of the podcast of the week. I'm Spectre with Mia Z. Today, we have the OpenSSL bug that gained a lot of traction on social media, or rather two bugs, a Java XML signature verification issue and an in the wild chain for Samsung phones. Before we get into anything, though, I do want to mention we'll be doing the DEF CON talk uh, watch party streams this week. That'll be on Thursday and Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And of course, uh, we'll cover the spot the bone solution, which I'll let Z get into. Yeah, so this week's Spot the Bone is a little bit more complex than uh, some of the last ones, at least if you're looking at it. Um, main reason for that is I took this out of some actual code from a vulnerability in curl that was reported at the beginning of October. Uh, made it a little bit smaller, making like that macro a bit more complex than it was in reality. Uh, basically, what you've got here is some loop that's iterating over buffer. Buffer does come from the attacker, this netrc file. Or possibly from an attacker. Um, comes from there. Basically, it iterates over that, reading it. Key, key things that it does. First thing, uh, as part of that while loop, is it's iterating kind of line by line. Um, first thing that it does while it's space, it skips over all the space characters. Uh, looks for a common character or looks of the first non-space is the null byte. And ends it off there. And then at the end... Um, well, at the end of the portion I've included here, at least, it's checking for a double quote. If it's a double quote, it's going to try and read out like the whole string. Um, otherwise, if it's not a quoted string, then it's just going to look for the next non-space character, expecting there to be a space character to mark the end of like that word or term or whatever. Key thing there is in that last loop, well, if it's not a quoted string is it's going to do this is space macro, just kind of keep repeating that and pushing the uh, buffer forward. And that is space macro will check for, you know, the space character, tab character. Um, it will check between the new line and carriage return character, so that also includes, like, a vertical line tab and one other character in there. Um, basically checking for the new line characters. What it doesn't do is it doesn't check for the null, which means it can go out of bounds and then do this zero right afterwards. Actually exploiting this is probably going to be a little bit complex depending on the memory layout there. But it is an out of bounds right. It is something you can notice there. Actual exploitation would be or might be a little bit tricky, just given the fact that it's going to depend the right is going to happen. Um or is going to depend on the actual layout of memory as it's reading out of bounds already. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, I figured it was a good example of that sort of, uh, just assuming you've got a certain structure of the data and parsing for it. In this case, assuming there definitely will be that non-space character rather than just the end of the file. Yeah, and uh, speaking of vulnerabilities that, might be questionable when it comes to exploiting them. We'll jump into our first topic here, which is an off by one in OpenSSL's uh, Punity Code Handler, uh, which yields edit bounds right. Um, this particular uh, page we have open, this GitHub repo, only talks about the uh, off by one issue. Uh, there was actually two vulnerabilities addressed in OpenSSL 3.0.7, um, the other one also being another buffer overflow in X509 cert validation. And uh, I'll let Z get into this one. Yeah, there were the two issues. I've just pulled up the official like OpenSSL advisory, which kind of talks about both of them first. Um, effectively, the one that we're going to talk about was one that was initially rated uh, critical at first, and then there was a second vulnerability, um, I believe it talks here, where basically you could end up writing an arbitrary number of, of course, it's the period character, so trying to control that for that on screen if you're watching. Doesn't really help. Um, but you could write uh, an arbitrary number of period characters out onto the stack buffer, going over, going out of bounds, overflowing. Um, the more interesting vulnerability, I thought at least, is this um, a CV2022-3602, uh, which is in the punny code parsing. I guess both of these are actually in punny code parsing, too. Um this one is Morphin off by one. And let me actually bring up code itself. It's pretty obvious. Well, not a pretty obvious issue, but it's um 
one of those common issues where it's an off by one because it's checking this if written out is greater than the maximum output. So as you'd guess, written out is how many bytes it's written out. Max out is size of the buffer, how many bytes it's allowed to write out. Um, if it if written out is more than uh, the maximum, then it's going to return. Key thing there being if it's more than, not more than or equal to the maximum it can write out. Uh, so it'll write one beyond what it should. Letting you do a four byte integer, uh, write a four byte, in, one extra four byte integer out. Um, and that is on the stack. Just, yes, uh, I don't this, remember if you mentioned that. No, I, I don't think I did. Yeah, so this is in OSSL punny code decode. And that is only reached through one path, which comes from, which basically passes in the uh, stack buffer. Um, so with just the one path gang there, like you, in theory, this could take other buffers, but as it's being used in OpenSSL, there's only the one path. You could also, uh, this is an exposed function, like it's part of the library, so like it could be called in some other application another way, but um, within OpenSSL itself, this is basically uh, just the one path to it. Yeah. So it is like an out-of-bounds right on the stack of four bytes. Um, it is worth noting the exploitability here. Uh, it basically seems impossible to exploit. Um, so the, the person who wrote up this GitHub repo tested this on various versions and, and various uh, operating systems and found that basically in every case, uh, the out-of-bounds write would be happening into stack padding. So it, it's not really giving you anything useful. Um, on top of that, you know, whenever you have these out-of-bounds write on the stack, um, stack canaries are obviously it, a a factor to consider um, and in many cases they will be uh, compiled in um, you also have aslr getting in the way so even if you could potentially hit something useful you know you might need to chain with another bug um, and on top of that as bleak mentioned in chat uh, this bug is only accessible in open ssl 3 or higher uh, or 3 to 3.07 i should say so that's another mitigating circumstance because from what i've seen like having open ssl 3 uh, in use seems to be pretty rare. Most systems are going to be running on, on two dot something. Um, so it seems to be one of those like newer functions. that's not really going to be, uh, you know, super easy to hit. And even if you could, um, because of all the other factors and the lack of control you have over the stack contents, um, or like only being able to write four bytes in a fixed location, it seems like it's probably not really, um, exploitable. Um, you know, yeah, of so, course it's totally possible it is, but it, it seems unlikely, at least in this case. Yeah, like it is an arbitrary out of like arbitrary value out of bounds, you know, four byte, right? Like that is a reasonable primitive to say somebody might come up with a way to exploit this. I think just at looking at that, what the primitive is, I think it's fair to say it could be exploitable. And that's what OpenSSL did when they first reported the issue and reported this one as critical. It was critical because you're reasonably likely with that sort of primitive to be a text like this. In reality, because of you know, where it is on the stack, so in some cases it was overflowing into padding, other cases into a, another buffer. Um, if you're compiling with canaries, that's going to be another thing. You can compile this however you want. So there are a lot of questions. Um, yeah, Valika mentions in chat, it's going to depend on architecture and also the compiler. Absolutely. There's a lot of different cases, so they were kind of playing it safe by marking it as critical, and then as more environments were checked out, they dropped it down to high simply because um, it wasn't likely in the common scenarios, but not necessarily that it's not likely in any scenario. Um, it's still a memory corruption, like there is still something there. Um, another thing yeah. to mention about the actual route to hit the issue is that this happens after the initial uh, certificate chain and signature checking. It does all of that, so it still needs to pass um, all of those checks. So if it's self-signed or something, you can't even hit this. It does need to be a signed certificate, and then the uh, one of the intermediate certificates has to have a um, a name constraint on it, and the actual like attacking certificate, leave certificate in that chain, needs to have one of these... Uh, subject alternate names that has a um, that has punny code in it, and that intermediate certificate also needs to have the punny code as part of the name constraint. So there are a lot of asks there. 
there might be some scenario where people are dynamically creating the certs and all of that. Like, yet still having restrictions on there. So it's not like Let's Encrypt or something's going to give you this. It's, there could be some complex setup, probably like I'd imagine like an internal uh, corporate environment could possibly have it. But actually reaching this in the wild seems like a bit of a stretch, I think, for a lot of cases. Adding on to yeah. the fact that there's a challenging exploit. To it. Yeah, there's and a of lot course, of mitigating factors for yeah. uh, for this. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to add on there too. Oh, sorry if I cut you off. Um, oh, I just ahead. wanted to mention like one other case that the repo that we had up pointed out is maybe if you had like a hosting service that allows customer provided certs, um, that could be a, a scenario where this could be exploited. But again, like I don't think I've ever seen that. Uh, Isn't that like customer be... provided intermediate certs, not just like customer? Pro- yeah, so customer yeah, provided CAs. Yeah. So certificate authorities, not just a cert. Yeah. I yeah, I've CAs. seen I've seen hosts that offer the uh, you know, bring your own cert if you want, but not CAs. Yeah. I, I um, believe it could happen. I just haven't seen it. Yeah. Um Baliga mentioned in chat there are many bootloaders that don't uh use protections and use open SSL for cert checks. Yeah, but like the, the critical thing here is that this vuln is reachable after the cert is already checked. Um so it's kind of like it's 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 not an attack surface it's very easy to get access to. Um so when you can you know when you add that on to all the other stuff with all the other mitigating factors, yeah. Um exploitability is looking pretty pretty low here. Yeah, like um, even on the uh case of like the bootloaders, you'd have to have your leaf cert that's doing this attack signed by a certificate that they trust on the bootloader. Yeah. Um, which, you know, maybe can happen, but I guess you need the two things signed because you do need that intermediate certificate. Presumably their CA doesn't have the uh, name constraint on it. I'm not even sure if you can do yeah, that. Yeah, there, there's other paths that are easier, I would imagine. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but try to hit the bootloader. I, I mean, it's fair to say, like, in terms of exploitability and ignoring the access part of it, um, yeah, there probably are some cases where it could be exploited, but it just depends so hard on uh, that stack layout, for one, which is going to vary compiler to compiler. That's not, like, stack order is not something that's just defined for the language. It can be whatever the compiler decides, and compilers do reorder the stack. Um, yeah, usually against attacks like this, though. <laughs> so, yeah, know, like the common reordering is to put the buffers so they won't overflow into anything smaller. So, like a smaller or a buffer won't overflow into like integers or some flags or whatever. Yeah. Being a one byte overwrite, like best case scenario, or not a one byte, being four byte overwrite or integer overwrite. Um, case scenario i think in a lot of cases is you're going to be able to repoint base pointer you know the saved base pointer um which might be useful no, i don't oh, know it, it could be useful because i can imagine if they're doing this on the stack you've probably got other attacker data on the stack too uh but what i was going to get at is this is a certificate so if there's aslr like this exactly. is a one and done so you don't have that chance to kind of ask the question back and forth and figure out where is anything located at your certificate that's signed needs to know what value to put in there. Um, yeah, see, that's kind of where I was going with like that might be useful is because, you know, you're you have a four byte overwrite, so you're not able to do like a partial overwrite, really. You have to write at least a, a D word. So ASLR is going to be in play there. It's it's well. I assumingly like maybe there are some cases where it wouldn't be, but if it is, it's going to be really hard to get control of the stack pointer in a useful way that way. Um, so yeah, because like, bootloaders like without a, it, completely yeah. believable. Yeah, it's true. But um, what I was going to say was like, yeah, if it was like a linear overflow where you had some control of the length and you could terminate it early, um, absolutely. Like being able to hit RBP like that, you could do something useful. Um, but where this is kind of constrained and you're going to be writing four bytes, uh, yeah, it's it's a bit hard to say. Um, it's going to be very context-specific, and I think in most contexts, yeah, it's just not really going to happen. 
Um, I did want to mention there is also the second bug, which I briefly touched on earlier. That is a little bit... Um, it's it's kind of interesting because it's both a little bit more useful and a little bit more constrained too, um, because it was basically possible to get the decode handler to keep outputting dot characters past the end of the buffer if you kept passing uh, puny code labels in the email field. Um, it seems they had a bit of code where at where um, if it hadn't reached the end and there was still encoded characters, it would write out the dot characters and set the result zero, but it would never actually check that result, so it could just keep writing the characters. So, in, like, you could basically overflow dot characters of arbitrary length on the stack, though only dot characters. So, you know, in this other bug case, you have more control over the length of, and how much you're hitting on the stack, but you have no control over the contents. So, yeah, it's kind of like a trade-off. Um, again, you're in a questionable exploit scenario, but yeah, I mean, they are both memory corruptions, like you said. Um, maybe there's some useful way you could take advantage of it, but the fact that these... I'm I'm thinking both bugs. I know at least the one bug that we were talking about is only reachable after the uh, um, the cert validation. Yeah. It's They're both that of... punny code functions. They're both needing to go through, at least for OpenSSL, some other fun if some other thing's using as library calling in, that's a different case, but um, at least going through the normal SSL, like not calling punny code directly... Um, it needs it needs to go through that same signature validation and all of that first. That's what I would assume too. Yeah. Um, now I know there was a bit of discussion around these issues and uh, some drama around it uh, because yeah, people were before... surprised like such a simple issue was found um, in live code. And I th I thought you I think you want to jump into that, so I'll let you. I did want to jump into that. That's kind of a final note on exploitation, though. Um, I do think these issues like. These are the sorts of issues that can be really fun to play around with and try and exploit because, you know, we're talking here about all the challenges to it, but it is a memory corruption. It is possible that there is something you can do with it, and it's always impressive when somebody does work out those issues that appear, uh, like, first glance not to be exploitable. Um, so, I just want to show, like, we're thinking that, but I would never be absolutely certain in saying something's not exploitable, even in a case like this, because it has been proven otherwise before. I mean, I think of, you know, the poison null byte attack where off by one null byte right in the heap, eventually they worked into an actual attack effectively um, to get RC. So, see, that's kind of why I'm a little bit more comfortable saying that this one's probably not exploitable, though, is because in the heap, you have so much more uh, got attack room, strategies. You got metadata, yeah. actually, I think would be the big thing there. Yeah, the stack, um, it, it's you don't really have the same uh, level of influence, so yeah. it's it's a lot trickier to hit. Yeah, definitely. Um, anyway, so the other aspect I kind of want to talk about here was there was some discussion regarding how did this vulnerability happen? Why wasn't it caught sooner? And there was a Twitter post um, and this blog post that I've brought up here where they basically had what they refer to as, um, actually, I think this is a link to the Twitter. Yeah. So I'm just pulling up the Twitter here, but to the simplest possible fuzzing test case, basically, which is just a four line creates a buffer pass or uses lip fuzzer. So has the lip fuzzer input lip fuzzer does all like the heavy lifting for actually fuzzing comes up with inputs and passes them in. They pass that into plenty code decode and very quickly were able to get this stack buffer overflow. Um, how many iterations did they get here? Uh, yeah, just under 10,000 like 10, iterations. Yeah. yeah. So pretty quick. Um, able to find it. They, I think they indicate that was in seconds somewhere. Somewhere in the chain. Either way, a fairly quick and easy to find issue with fuzzing. And there were a lot of indications that, well, OpenSL just wasn't fuzzing. I remember reading, I think it was Hacker News, where the discussion was like, why didn't they learn from uh, past vulnerabilities, you know, to start fuzzing? And they they are fuzzing. OpenSL does fuzz their code. Um, the main reason why I don't think this one would have been caught super early is, as we've talked about, there are... The way OpenSSL does their fuzzing, I'll just pull up their fuzzer. Um, also using libfuzzer, um, although they have a different wrapper around it. Coming in at fuzzer test one, 
Um, all they do for their testing, though, is they do this D2I X509, sir, um, with the uh, with the buffer coming in and and passing the link there, and they do you know print some data, um, and they do I to D with it. Uh, effectively, they just parse the cert. They parse whatever buffer comes in as a certificate and fuzz that way. So what they're doing is they're fuzzing all of X509, and their fuzzer. And this is also going through um, OSS Fuzz, Google's program for fuzzing open source software. Um, they fuzz the entire X509. So in theory. This can hit um, plenty code, but they aren't writing individual fuzzers for every single function that can be hit, which is a good and best practice is to write um, you know, something for that. Uh, current exploit mentions, well, it's a pretty lazy fuzzer. I hope they have a decent corpus. Yeah, I believe they do have uh, more of a corpus to this towards actually generating. They have a better wrapper around actually generating. Notice this, is, um, this isn't the live fuzzer test one. It's... Um, Fuzzer test one input, which is basically after they've done their own wrapper to do like open SSL specific stuff. A little bit more complex than it appears. Like they're not just getting a random buffer here. Um, but it is kind of a lazy buffer, but it's testing the entirety of X509 parsing. Um and not testing that specific function. That's kind of the key thing. Writing writing a fuzzer for every function is a good practice. It is something, you know, companies should do with their software is having a fuzzer on all of those functions uh, rather than doing it like this as a whole. But we've also talked about bugs that have been missed because they were only fuzzing those functions and not doing like integrated testing. It takes a lot more maintenance, a lot more effort for them to maintain fuzzers on every single function that's there. So, I mean, yeah. I feel like doing this fuzzing is a fair trade-off. It's not the best practice. However, OpenSSL is, I think they only have two full-time engineers. Obviously, more people do contribute to it, but in terms of full-time stuff, I think they only have two engineers. So, like, this is not a massive project. With You know, they have to make these trade-offs. And I feel like, you know, they're doing fuzzing, so that's good. OSS fuzzes on it. Again, good. Um would be better if they were doing that. And that is, you know, a lesson to learn here is to do the more targeted fuzzing or basically I kind of think as a, as a similar case of unit testing versus integration testing, both are kind of necessary. Uh, but yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean, go ahead. Part of the problem is to do that, like individual testing to try to like maximize your coverage of functions. Like that's typically dedicated to an entire team in and of itself. Um, so it's like, it's just not really something they have the, they seem to have the resources to do. And like, it, it's very, um, tasking to do that, especially as your code gets updated, your fuzzers then also have to be updated. Um, you know, at what point does it stop becoming reasonable? Right. Especially when you're only talking about a few people. Um, and the other thing I I'd mentioned too, is like, it's very easy, uh, to go after the fact and just like write a fuzzer to try to target a bug and then hit it and then be like, oh, wow, they're so stupid. Why couldn't they find this? Um, I mean, I, we've probably been guilty of this in the past too. It's just very easy with the hindsight to be able to write a fuzzer that can hit something. Um, whereas, you know, when you're obviously not aware of that issue, um, and the fuzzer is running, you're you don't really have a lot of like a ton of control or influence over what that fuzzer is going to be targeting. Um, it, it's inherently going to be random. Um, it's going to be based on whatever corpus it has, what it's been, tr uh, you know, building up and um, coverage on and whatever. It's going to depend on what kind of instrumentation is in play. Um, you know, in this case, a sand could catch it. And I'm assuming they're using a sand with their fuzzing setup. So, you know, uh, it could have found it in that in this case. But yeah, I mean, it, it feels a little unfair to just like write a quick fuzzer and be like, oh, yeah, I was able to hit this issue. But like, you know where the issue is. So, of course, you're going to be able to target a fuzzer to be able to hit it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, that's kind so of why... So I don't think that's totally fair, basically. That's kind of why I've talked about like writing this across every function that's exposed and kind of generalize it out. Because, yeah, like they wouldn't know to write the fuzzer on the one, but as developers are writing functions that do get exposed as... You know, they do have man pages for them um, as they have those functions. 
those developers could also write the fuzzer for them as part of like writing the same way you'd write like a unit test for your function. Um, Even that though, I could see there being bias. If you're like writing a fuzzer for your own function, you can try to think of it as like, okay, I intend the function to be called this way. So I'm going to fuzz it with that in mind. You know what I mean? Well, this um, one at like least in particular. Problems. Um, you know, going back, this was the simplest possible fuzzer targeting OpenSSL punycode decode or whatever the function name was. Uh, like, yeah, it sorry, wasn't I, I doing am being anything a bit extra. There. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I, like, I am you being can. A bit um, you're definitely right. Like you can end up doing that. There can be problems with that, but like that is, I think, the best way to integrate having fuzzing. Um, is to also have developers in charge of writing the fuzz test for their functions. Um, you can have that bias there in the same way you can have that bias with anything else, but that's also where, you know, that's where the integration testing should hit it. And I think that's where you kind of have the issue on this one is because of the constraints on actually reaching that punny code, um, decode, like actually getting that call to happen during the X509 parsing. Um, because it needs to, you know, go through all the valid stuff. I can imagine that the fuzzer just wasn't hitting that. Um, as far as I know, o- OSS fuzz does not publish like their coverage information. I can't actually take a look and see if it was hitting the function at all. Maybe it was always hitting it with valid data or something like that. Oh, um, yeah, we are heavily speculating here where we don't know like uh, a lot about their fuzzing setup. So, well, um, so I do have like the build script. That's I think that's here actually. That's used by. Or was it in no OS? I think it might have. There was a re. I don't know. I have the link somewhere. I don't have it up right now. It goes yeah, to the actual build script that OSS Fuzz uses to build all the fuzzers that um, OpenSSL provides. They build yeah, quite but, a few fuzzers. But what I mean is, we don't have all the information on like what corpus they have and what coverage they have, like any of the fuzzer state. Um, so that's kind of where you know we're speculating. We don't know. Uh, it's it's fair to like point that out okay, um, i may be wrong uh current exploit in chat mentions this is post on twitter uh storage report to oss fuzz coverage maybe they do post coverage somewhere i was trying to look for them oh, wasn't neat. finding okay. it but oh uh, obviously they have it in you know i guess this is just on google storage but presumably you might actually be able to see that somewhere or it was just shared uh internally um I've, well the, this this uh file has zero coverage so to, to save you, so the, it's uh, it's not hitting through. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not um, hitting it at all. Yeah, not hitting anything actually in here, which is interesting. Um, I don't know what the constraints are to hitting this because, like, if that punny code decode is really the main entry point. Um, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, this a ATU compare I remember being mentioned in one of the write ups is kind of what ends up leading to the punny code one. Um, so my guess is basically all of this kind of falls under that same sort of constraint um, as we were talking about, needing to have the whole certificate true, which in fairness, like if you're looking at this coverage, this is something you can notice and be like, why aren't we hitting this? How can we write a better fuzzer that will hit this? Um, and so yeah. providing like the signed certs and all of that. Um, and if they're not going through with that, they should, as I think it was current exploit also mentioned earlier, like the lazy fuzzing. I believe I recall reading in some of the code, they are doing a little bit more than what it appears that they're doing. Perhaps not enough. Um, Because, yeah, I mean, if you do read the fuzzer that we looked at, um, I'm also going to apologize to those of you watching. I opened up the link in my main browser instead of the actual visible one. Um, But, yes, you can kind of see it's just all zeros for the coverage report. Yeah, I mean, it's fair to call out, and um, like you, kind of jumping back to what you said earlier with best best practices, like best practices would be looking at the coverage, trying to improve your coverage across files, but, you know, like I said too, like, that's typically dedicated to like a team of people um, that are working on that, so. Yeah, it's it's a big ask for like the two full-time engineers to do a lot of this. I think they should be doing that, but at the same time. But realistically. It's two engineers. Yeah. yeah, plus plus free. Like I think it would be a great place if somebody wanted to contribute on the fuzzing side. Um, you know, that is somewhere somebody with you know one of our listeners, even or somebody with more secure knowledge could jump in and like improve the fuzzing and get involved at that level. But at that the same awesome, time, yeah. um 
at the same time, like for this project, they are chronically underfunded and they kind of just showcases that they've golf buzzing. They've improved a bit. There's more that could be done. And I think part of the problem really comes down to the fact that these get so widely used, but you know, still rather underfunded. It's kind of interesting because like open SSL seems to be really lacking resources and it's used like everywhere. It's a, it's a very heavily used library and there's this weird thing in open source where it's like certain projects, like let's say the Linux kernel, um, the the Linux kernel has, (laughs) well, the Linux kernel has funding from like multiple like mega corporations. They've, they've got a lot of like support on that front, which is why, you know, Linux security is constantly improving and getting better and has a lot of, uh, uh, tooling built around it, especially with Google. But yeah, with things like open SSL, it's kind of just like, uh, yeah, nobody seems to care. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, it, it would be nice to see more resources thrown at, you know, projects like open SSL. It seems to be kind of the weak link in the dependency chain where it's like these crypto libraries, it's just like people don't care about them. Um, from like a security perspective, which which kind of sucks, um, yeah. and it's why some of these issues prop up. I think we were we were kind of privately talking about that a bit, and I feel like part of that might be like there's kind of this feeling also because of OpenSSL's past. But I feel like some places are also just trying to avoid using OpenSSL, and thus um, you kind of have a few competing products out there is kind of splitting anybody that might support. And I've just pulled up like their acknowledgements here and sponsorship donations. And yeah, it's a very small list. Like there are companies. I, I think one thing I saw, so they get like a million dollars a year. Oh, there's something like that. That doesn't so, go like, very far when you're talking about engineers though. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it doesn't like it's enough for some engineers and some infrastructure and stuff. But like, I don't know how accurate that number is, by the way, that is like a, you know, I, I read that one time sort of thing, so the number could be very wrong. Um, but, like, you know, there's literally just a handful of companies actually sponsoring them here. Yeah, so basically, like, the, the main takeaway from that conversation is just, like, you know, it's fair to point out that their fuzzing is a little lazy, they could be doing it better, but it's also fair to point out that their resources are somewhat constrained, um, doing this kind of active buzzing where you're actively looking at coverage and continuously improving it as well as doing development is not a not a small ask. Uh, it's a pretty tall order, uh, especially when you're talking about only a few people doing it. So, yeah, and it's yeah. a huge project, too. I mean, we're talking about this one fuzzer for X509 parsing. Uh, they also have the ASN1 parser here. Um, I guess actually... I'm- I think CMP is some fuzzer, but I'm not sure. Yeah, it is. I just don't know what, what that is. Actually, it looks like it does more with um, X509 stuff. I don't know. Either way, um, you know, it's it's a large project, though. There is a lot of code here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it sucks that it happened. This isn't the worst phone ever. Like, they did drop it down to high. Yeah. I think it could have been caught earlier with better practices, but I kind of am willing to excuse them on that because they do with they're not like the worst practices I've ever seen. Yeah. And you know, the where the vulnerability is so constrained, I mean that's gonna constrain the fuzzer's ability to, to find it too, which we kind of touched on. So yeah, I mean there's a lot of circumstances to consider there, basically. Belika just linked a great comic I had forgotten about. Um from XKCD, basically <laughs> just you know dependency and modern digital infrastructure, and just the it's the one little project that the being Jenga maintained. Tower. Yeah, yeah. Well, the one little project holding everything off, random person Nebraska has been thanklessly maintaining since two thousand and three. Very true. Yeah. I mean, and I've read about that even on even in companies that. Um, like not like OpenSL. OpenSL's a little bit different, but you know, I've read about like teams at Microsoft where it's like you know this one person maintaining some core core project that everybody's depending on. It's like one person on the team that's doing it. Um, I mean, you have a lot of dependencies. Sometimes you don't even notice them. Anyway, a lot of the I mean, time. yeah. I mean, really, as a vulnerability, I think exploit. 
exploitability could be something interesting to look at. Fuzzing wise, we talked a while back, like an example where the fuzzer wasn't doing this, actually wasn't doing um, large value fuzzing, like large input fuzzing. Um, So kind of miss things there, but kind of an integration issue. In this case, it's the flip side of being not doing the unit level testing. Oh, so I mean it's it's interesting for those reasons, but I think we've also talked about everything now. Yeah. Like you said, it'd be cool to see if somebody can come up with an exploit for the ball though. Um so you know, keep yeah, a lookout for that, I guess. Note the scenarios that it is exploitable in. Yeah. Alright, so we'll jump into our next topic here, which is a Project Zero post by uh, Felix Wilhelm on a Voln and XML signature verification and open GDK. So again, kind of another uh, crypto-related parsing bug. Um, and Z, I'll let you jump into this. Yeah, I, I mean, yes, crypto-related parsing bug. Not really in the crypto code at all. Uh, this one's cool. Uh, so there's actually a um, hexacon talk. Um, I think it's hacking... Hacking the Cloud with SAML or something like that uh, by Felix Wilhelm. Um, Pretty good talk also. It follows a lot of the same content. The post goes into a little bit more detail. I'm going to summarize a lot of this because it is a long post and a lot of it is only really going to be interested if you're actually interested in pulling off like this specific attack. Start this Starting this off, a little bit of background with SAML. You've got the, uh, what is that, security assertion markup language, I want to say. Um, effectively, it's used for, like, single sign-on systems. You'll pass a route. Similar in a sense, or at least in concept, what you're trying to do in some cases to, like, OAuth. But way more, like, options, customizability, and things can happen in there. And it uses XML. Uh, to pass around the, or to write up these assertions, um, as you would expect, it does uh, signatures and task signing of the data, all of that. One of the key things that it does is when it's uh, when you have signed information with these XML signatures, um, it can perform uh, kind of translations or transformations on the data itself to kind of normalize it, canonicalize it, so both sides are comparing the same like data to be signed. And that actually is way more complex than you might expect it to be. Uh, that's where this XSLT comes into play, which I forget exactly what that stands for. Um, but it's like a query language, or not a query language. It's like a little language that you can write transformations in. You know, you've got looping, you've got, well, you can call functions with it. Um, yeah, I just pulled up an example here on W3 schools where. You can basically write, like, you know, selecting the title and looping over things that are in catalog slash CD and then goes to, um, okay, they've, they've just got the template up here. But um, effectively, it is, you can write kind of somewhat arbitrary transformations here. And so that kind of slows things down. It's almost almost like a little scripting language um, that can be applied over the data before the signature gets checked. So what you can do, or what they do, is they actually compile that into a Java byte class, or into Java bytecode, creating a class file um, of this XSLT, and that's um, the XSLTC project. will effectively take, those, take this XSLT, compile it into Java bytecode, which is where we have an issue. Um, what it does is... In crafting a Java class file, it has a constantPool. constantPool contains things like, uh, well, all of the constants that are being used, you know, functions are in there. Or in some cases, I think you'll have function kind of pointer-ish things in there. I, I don't know everything that's in there. Either way, it's critical data for the class. The class is going to reference these things. Um, you've got the constantPool count, and then you've got the actual constantPool, which is just basically the constantPool entries one after the other. And the problem is that the constantPool count is a U2 or um, basically unsigned integer two by, of two bytes long um, or a 16-bit integer, I guess. 
got that count for that, but the way it tracks it internally is it only uses a um or it uses just the standard Java array to track all of these constants that's adding to the pool. Um, and so you can overflow this. If you have more than 16 bits worth of constants, it's just going to overflow and you're going to have more constants, but the actual constant pool or count value that gets written out is going to be very small. So it might say you have like two constant pool entries and you've got like the two indices written there, but when it goes to write them, it's going to write like all, what is it for 16 bits? 65,000, I think value. Uh, yeah, sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like 65, 565 or 536 six. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's a bunch of sixes and fives. Oh, <laughs> that's all I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. 65, 535. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's going to write all of those entries out because it knows about them as it's writing it. It's, but that integer, I guess I say overflow, it gets truncated at, technically um, because there's too many. So when the actual class gets executed and run to perform the, uh, transformation, what will happen is it's going to basically misparse. It's going to think that things that are, uh, that were written, um, it was thinking that's part of the constant pool that the B BCEL, the library that actually does this, it thinks it's writing constant pool values, but because that constant pool count is so low, it's going to start, or the Java environment is going to start reading as the access flag, this class, super class. It's going to start reading as all of these things um, and misinterpreting all of that data, basically letting you craft a class to get arbitrary code execution. That's where kind of the rest of the post goes down into how these different pieces of constants get transformed into the bytecode and that sort of translation, how you're able to craft specific things of the challenges involved there. It is interesting. It reminds me of something we talked about uh, quite a while back. I'd have to find the link to the post. It was another like Java bug, but it was, uh, I think, Google's App Engine. Mm, I'm, I can't really remember the post you're talking about, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, um, I, I meant to look it up before. Sorry, but it was like a intern at Google or maybe it was Amazon or something. They were doing like the they were doing a Java rewriting thing to sandbox it, and they found like this crazy bug in there, and they started kind of trying to craft the bytecode using this overflow. I'll see if I could find the link later and just add it to our show notes. But um, mind me a bit of that. I don't want to dive too much into that because unless you're going to be crafting like this bytecode and trying to do this yourself, you're probably not running into that same situation. But that integer truncation. You know, definitely happens in more cases than just this. And it's kind of fun because this is a unauthenticated attack service. This is, you know, SAML is coming through and being passed around through the user. So the user can, can break these things. Um, Out of chat, XCD ADS is a deserialization. No, it's not a deserialization bug. You can craft a custom... Like, you're basically getting control of the bytecode of the Java class itself. You have some constraints over how the data is formed just because of the fact that um, the actual creator thinks that it's uh, these constant pool entries. Like, you're writing the bytecode that the Java virtual machine understands. If you're not familiar with bytecode, um, as this is our binary episode, most people are going to be familiar with what machine language is. Bytecode is similar to machine language, except it's intended to run in a virtual machine or like by another piece of software. So the Java VM runs Java bytecode. Um, it's generally like it's higher level than actual machine code. Like it has like the concept of a function and stuff rather than it just like jumps and branching. Um, has like these higher level concepts built in. So it is nicer to work with but you're effectively able to craft that higher level bytecode um, to get relatively arbitrary code execution here. So not quite deserialization, but still linked to RC. Yeah, it's kind of cool how this bug even works and like the, uh, the primitive that you get off of it for being able to, um, you know, overwrite the other class members. I don't know. It's just something that I don't think we see very often in like a Java uh, 
vulnerability scenario. Because um, it's almost got like a memory corruption-esque feel to it where um, where you just don't really see that in, in, in the Java vulnerabilities we cover. So yeah, um, as is always the case too, you know, with these Project Zero posts, um, Post is very thorough and does a good job of like showing, um, you know, giving you all the relevant code snippets and doing some diagrams to, to help illustrate what they're talking about, especially in the exploitation section. Um, but yeah, like you said, I think it's fair to you know, if you want to check that out, it's there. Um, go for it. But we're not really going to cover it because it's it's pretty hyper specific to this uh, exploit scenario. So, yeah, um, there is also the uh, the Hexacon talk on it. I haven't watched it yet. Um, I don't know if maybe we'll cover it in our in our watch parties. But um, regardless, if we do or don't, I'll probably check out this talk as well. Because um, yeah, a, a lot of the the Hexacon talks were were pretty cool and Imagine it's, it's interesting we've already had like two talks tie into our topics already six terra so, we're focused on building yeah just goes to show i guess how um how uh, relevant some of those Hexacon talks uh, are on there some people might have heard some random audio while you were on there i was trying to add the youtube video and had an ad playing right off the start so sorry about that oh okay hopefully you can repeat the last few said. seconds <laughs> yeah no i was just saying um you know with it's cool because hexacon um we we've had like two hexacon talks that are relevant to the topics we've been covering so just kind of illustrates like how relevant the the stuff that was talked about at hexacon is to the modern landscape for for vulnerable research and exploitation so uh yeah uh, along that lines we have another project zero post uh which is by Maddie Stone on an in the wild exploit chain found targeting some Samsung devices uh, using three vulnerabilities. And interestingly, the sample they seem to have got, um, they believe was leaked as like part of a debug build. Um, so it wasn't like a production ready uh, productized thing where there was like a payload at the end of it. It was just kind of the implementation of the exploits. Um, so yeah, three, uh, three exploits were involved here. Um, it consisted of a file rewrite in the clipboard provider a kernel info leak through seclog and a UAF in the display processing unit or DPU driver. Um, this was targeting some older Samsung devices running 4.14.113.lower um, or lower rather uh, for the kernel version. And it was targeting uh, Exynos devices specifically. So international Samsung models, uh, not the not the North American ones. So yeah, jumping into it, uh, first vulnerability, the arbitrary file system read write. Um, this one was kind of neat in how it worked and it's probably the most interesting uh, issue in the post, um, but it's also fairly simple. Um, and it's basically like an access controls issue uh, in Samsung's custom clipboard provider. Um, so this was accessible over the system server. Um, the, the clipboard content provider, I believe, is supposed to be used for like images here. Um, so it'll have like a database which has a table of IDs to um, this underscore data value, which is used to store the URI of the file, uh, the backing file to open. Um, the problem is there's basically no validation on that URI. Uh, and there's no permission checking on the calling process against that URI. So you can basically just insert arbitrary URIs into the database with the insert method on the clipboard content provider. Um, so yeah, by just pass passing a path to some privileged file, um, you can basically use the system server as a proxy to get a, a raw file descriptor to a file that you normally wouldn't have access to. Um, from there, they use that a couple times in the exploit chain. Uh, the first thing they do is use that to install a backdoor executable in the uh, data systems user zero directory. Um, and then it uses it as um, to access the, uh, the other components that are used for the kernel vulnerabilities too. Um, the post details a bit about how they escape the sandbox by utilizing Samsung's text-to-speech um, combined with the first phone. So basically what they did there was they used the clipboard to write to the text-to-speech settings um, and they set the like engine path to the file they installed earlier. So that gets them arbitrary code exec as system in the system app SE Linux context, um, which is pretty important because the kernel vulnerabilities were only accessible to uh, the system app context, like they weren't accessible to unprivileged. Um, so they talk a bit about that, but that in and of itself is basically just how they took advantage of the exploit to to continue on to the next stage um, wasn't really a vulnerability in and of itself. The second vulnerability was in the kernel, um, the kernel log component that Samsung has, which is also custom. Um, basically, Samsung has this custom logging file, data log, sec log, um, and that file was accessible to system app. 
And where K message is normally privileged off, even from system app, because, you know, obviously there could be some sensitive data going there. Um, Samsung's custom logging utility would basically copy K message contents over to the sec log. Um, so if you could just trigger a warning or anything else that would dump the register state to the logs, um, you could just use that to leak kernel pointers. There they used a warn on in the Mali GPU driver where, you know, on affected devices, if you just simply provided a bad, uh, hardware count reader IOCTL, it would call warn on, and then, you know, the pointers will be dumped to the stack and you've defeated KSLR basically. Um, the third and final vuln was a UAF and the DPU kernel driver, which could lead to arbitrary read write. Uh, that was in the decon set win config function for the display and enhancement controller. Um, pretty straightforward UAF. Basically this uh, set win config function would try to create a DMA fence um, and install a file descriptor uh, for the the retire fence sync file. Um, now, we've kind of covered an issue that was similar to this before, but for those that don't know, um, in the Linux kernel, when you call FD install, that's that's basically creating an FD and installing it in the file, uh, the process file table. So as soon as that call executes, anyone in the process can access that file descriptor and do operations on the file, um, such as closing it, for example. Um, so yeah, an attacker can get access, close it, but at that stage, a reference isn't a reference isn't taken on the file, and they use that file to install another file descriptor um, for the relative fence field. And yeah, so if if an attacker can just close it in between when those two uh, files are installed, it could end up installing a free or dangling uh, file pointer, and yeah, you now have a free file struct with a controlled FD available to the attacker. Um, Post does get into some of the exploitation there, which was sort of the classic attack for uh, for getting read write when you have an arbitrary write, which was going after the address limit. Um, that's basically a field that's used by the kernel to determine, you know, whether you're doing a kernel or user access um, so that, to try to prevent you from, you know, writing directly to kernel memory with like a copy in call or something. Um, and uh, yeah, so what they did here was they used the files private data pointer wrote that to set it to the address limit, and then use signal FD to perform the write. There is a little bit more to it than that. Um, they actually set the address limit multiple times to either the kernel DS or the user DS, or the kernel or user address limits, rather. Um, and that was to get around like the user access override and privileged access never mitigations. I won't go too much into that, as that's getting fairly specific. Um, but Maddie says that she also doesn't consider this a bypass because um, like UAO and PAN aren't really meant to protect against a scenario where you have an arbitrary write access to address limit. This technique is basically just abusing how UAO and PAN are intended to be used. Um, the attacker is basically just toggling uh, the address limit as if they were doing a proper, like a regular proper user kernel access. Um, finally, after getting read write, they escalate credentials and set their process SC Linux policy to VOLD, uh, which is a volume daemon, uh, which is basically like the most high, uh, one of the highest privilege. Uh, context that you can have. But yeah, awesome write-up by Maddie Stone here. It does give a lot of insight into Android and what's involved in some of these in the wild chains um, and shows the uh, the process of like escalating throughout the phone to get access to more and more attack surface, um, exploit more and more vulnerabilities to finally get what's essentially root. Um, yeah, I think it, it does a really good job of showing like um, sort of what's involved in like cutting edge Android exploitation. Um, and obviously, you know, this was in the wild, so that's exactly what it is. But yeah, I think the post does a really good job of breaking it down, even if you're not, you know, familiar with Android and its complicated permission model. Um, it's it's pretty like navigatable. You, you'll be able to understand this blog post pretty well. Um, and it goes into detail on like exactly how these uh, vulnerabilities were taken advantage of to to continue escalation. So yeah, really good post by Maddie Stone. Um, pretty interesting vulnerabilities. Like I said, I think the most interesting one is probably the clipboard provider, um, where they basically just like, you know, get access to uh, privileged files, getting raw file descriptors by abusing the uh, system server as a proxy. I thought that just was asking for them. Like, yeah, they get privileged files by just asking for them, basically. Yeah, I thought yeah, I thought that was a fun one here. Pretty reliable. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that was kind of the more fun issue out of the rest. I mean, kernel leak through the sec logs is just... Um, I mean, the fact that it's basically just copying it out into the log file, uh, sensitive data, like, that's kind of another funny issue to see here. But, 
you know, getting the file because you ask for it is pretty fun. So, and yeah. use after free. I mean, that's standard fare for what we cover. Yeah. Um, Bleeka is talking about uh, the phone models. So saying, I feel like Google looks at Samsung lately so much because they make the Pixel and six and seven too. Um, well, Google, like this is from their uh, Project Zeros, like in the wild analysis. So it, it's not really. I think this is actually the first time I've really seen them cover Samsung. I mean, maybe they've covered it before, but um, they just cover like whatever they they come across. Really, um, they've covered it. Like I do remember the Qmage stuff a while back. Um, someone at P Zero buzzed like that image Skia Skia library. I think it was. Uh, which I believe is a Samsung thing, or at least being used on Samsung and had like thousands of bugs falling out of it. Um, so yeah. like they've looked at Samsung before. It's it's come up, but I don't know. This yeah. one specifically comes out of like an in the wild, but I don't know. I mean, that would make sense as a motivation, but I'm not sure how much they really push on the Project Zero members versus just letting them put their time where they think it would be useful and of what they want to look at versus using another team for that. Yeah. Um, something else I wanted to comment on is um, Beliga mentioned Pixel 7 is the most secure Xenos-based phone you can buy now. Um, Pixel 7 isn't using Xenos as far as I know. Um, Pixel 6 and 7 are using Google's custom Tensor SoC, uh, which is like an in-house SoC they've been working on. Um, so yeah, I don't think pixel is using either Qualcomm or, uh, Xenos, but yeah, um, that's another thing that's interesting with Samsung actually is like, uh, as far as I know, other vendors don't really do this where they use like a different SOC between their U S models and their international models. Um, but Samsung, like you'll only find Samsung Qualcomm phones, uh, from like U S, uh, vendors, whereas, you know, their international models using uh, uses Xenos, which is like a less powerful SOC. I, I've always been kind of like curious what the reasoning on that is. Uh, it, it's a little bit weird. It's also like pretty annoying because Samsung, uh, the Qualcomm devices are a lot more locked down. So doing security research on them is a lot more difficult, whereas the Xenos international devices are fairly open. Um, you know, you can you can unlock the bootloader and everything pretty easily. Uh, you still do lose some things if you if you flash the phone, like you'll lose the the Samsung Pay or whatever, which is like you know who cares? I don't even know if anyone uses that. But um, yeah, the, Samsung's kind of weird with how they they divvy up the SOCs and their phone models. Um, so it was kind of cool to be able to comment, like see that in action here too, and comment on that a bit. But yeah, um, uh, Belika said no, they are Exynos Tensor as a rebranded Exynos ninety eight forty five. Okay, fair enough. Um, I, I don't know too much about like Google's Tensor SoC. It's not something I've I've looked at really. Um, it wouldn't surprise me that they based it on uh, an existing thing. And I yeah, I, I think I recall seeing that Google did use Samsung uh, Fab for the Tensor cores. So yeah, using Xenos would kind of make sense there, I guess. But all right, fair enough. Uh, good point. But yeah, getting back to the post, like I said, I think it's a pretty good post. It is a little bit long. Uh, it goes into a lot of details. Um, you, you may want to jump to like a specific section posts pretty laid out so you can do that easily. Um, but yeah, cool, cool chain here, uh, showing, you know, escalating through user land to eventually hit kernel and, and get root. So wanted to give it a shout out and, uh, yeah, uh, that's pretty much everything I had to say on that. So yeah. unless you uh, have anything you want to add Z, I guess we'll move on to shout outs and wrap up the show. No, I'll move right into the shout outs there where, um, I just had the one shout out. Um, it's a symbolic triage, making the best of a good situation. I haven't done a lot with, uh, symbolic execution. I'm familiar with it. Use it in like a couple situations, but I thought this was a cool post. Just basically talking about their process, going through using some symbolic execution to triage a bunch of fuzzing results or a bunch of, uh, crashes reported by a fuzzer. Goes right into their process there, everything they're trying, starting off with just creating like little debuggers so they can pull uh kind of concolic um execution where they have concrete information, executing a bit symbolically. Oh I I thought it was a cool post for that. Dives into that and shows off some reasons to be using symbolic execution, how you might integrate it into your workflow. 
Apparently, they also have like a four day course. So um, you can check that out, too, if you're actually interested. But as an initial post, it actually did kind of intrigue me a bit to maybe look at it a little bit more. I just haven't really put the time into it myself, but kind of show some reasons to instead of sticking with just the traditional ways, I guess. So yeah, wanted to shout it out. All right, cool. So that's where we'll end off the show. Thank you, everyone who tuned in. You can catch the VOD on Twitch immediately or on other platforms like YouTube tomorrow. Um, previous podcasts can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more links on Anchor. Uh, feel free to join the Discord and follow us on Twitter. Links for those are in the chat or down below. And uh, once again, keep a lookout for our DEF CON talk coverage on Thursday and Friday. Uh, and we'll uh, we'll see you then.